Music, science, cosmic culture. This is the Blue Dot Podcast. This episode is brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery. For more information, visit discovertheblue.com slash podcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review for the Blue Dot Podcast wherever you're listening. Hello, welcome to a special Hitchhiker's Guide 42nd birthday celebration. This panel discussion is part of Blue Dot's A Weekend in Outer Space, featuring live broadcasts from the worlds of science, music and culture from Blue Dot. You can find out more and watch and listen to the rest of this weekend's activities at aweekendinouterspace.com. I'm Kevin John Davis and I'm the archivist for Hitchhikers and I'm proud to be joined today by an array of Hitchhiker legends, um, including uh, cast members, uh, writers, co-writers, and those who knew and worked with Douglas Adams across the years or maybe were even related to him. And um, so first of all, I'd like to introduce James Thrift, Douglas's half-brother and very much a keeper of the flame. And um, James, uh, you must have some great memories of your big brother. Yeah, he, he, he uh, I was, oh, I mean, I was 10 when it all came out. So the start of him basically hammering away at a typewriter uh, was, was, was very early in my, uh, in my upbringing down the, uh, down the corridor. Um, but uh, primarily the, the, the memory, not so much of him, uh, as, as he used to always listen to the same album or the same tro- song uh, over and over and over. So it was like Paul Simon's One Trick Pony. Really? Oh, constantly, constantly. Uh, my Sweet George Harrison, My Sweet Lord. Um, which, uh, but the annoying thing for him, his turntable was 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 precariously on a shelf on a partition wall, um, so you didn't actually have to close the door on the house that hard for it to jump the record. Uh, which absolutely. Um, so I, I think I was probably Hitchhikers would have come out an awful lot earlier if I hadn't actually been there. I reckon. Well, that's that's um, just one of many excuses I'm sure that Douglas threw up for uh, <laughs> for not quite being ready on time. Um, somebody who knows a bit more about that we're going to bring in now, and that's John Lloyd, who, uh, well, legendary producer of so many programmes, but we are going right back to the early days. John, you helped Douglas on the very first radio series. How long had you known him before that? Uh, well, I met him when we were at Cambridge together. He was in the next door college, and we were both in... Uh, reviews or trying to be in reviews uh, and footlights in those days was considered a bit naff um, and the cool the cool thing was in college reviews so I ran the one at, um, at Trinity and Douglas was next door at St John's so we're kind of rivals and we used to meet at parties but and he was the year below me so we didn't really get to know each other until we both came down and started living in London and we became very very good friends I mean best absolute besties and spent before Hitchhiker. Uh, Douglas wanted to be a writer, and so did I, but I was so poor I had to take a job as a radio producer to at least eat. And Douglas, you know, crashed around. He wrote with Graham Chapman, and we used to come back from producing things like the news quiz and quote-unquote, and and then we'd write in the evenings and at weekends, you know, and we did loads of stuff. We... um, we did a treatment for Robert Stigwood for a film about the Guinness Book of Records. All these were science fiction based because we were both science fiction nuts. You know, we knew every, all of Vonnegut and all of, you know, 
Harry Harrison to Stainless Steel Rat, and you know, uh, and then we did a wrote a pilot called Snow Seven and the White Dwarves, which is about two astronomers sharing an observatory at the top of Everest. Um, and nothing, nothing really took. It was kind of a bit dispiriting, especially for Douglas. And the weird thing was that he was going to, um, he was going to give it all up. He was going to chuck in the towel. And I came back to, we shared a house together with a mad uh, guitarist whose name strangely was Gibson um, in Roehampton. And I came back from work and Douglas was sitting on the on the bed in his room, which it was a furnished house that we'd rented and it had seven wardrobes in it. We never found what was in six of them. It was only one, which he kept his few clothes in and the other six were all locked. And he's sitting on his bed really close to tears thinking, I, I, got, I can't do this, Johnny. I've got to go and become a shipbroker in, in Hong Kong, which oddly enough, he was inspired because Jeffrey Perkins had been that a few years before turning to radio production. And literally the next week, he got the commission for the pilot of Hitchhiker, and and everything was on the road. So and the whole world changed. Can you remember that, James? That that moment when it was all kicking off for Douglas. It was um, it was a strange time because uh, he was originally the script editor of Doctor Who, um, which for you know a nine year old kid was just it doesn't come much bigger that you're, you're living with somebody who is. That was when I first met him. As, yeah. When he was, I went and interviewed him for a fan magazine in 1978 and he was very much in the mode of well I've got this various things to do I've got these scripts to do and he and he was already talking about the BBC had talked to him about an animated hitchhiker and um and he then referred to the book and he just said oh, and I've got this book to write if only I could get the bloody thing finished <laughs> and you just think well with hindsight you know drop everything else Douglas just get the book done <laughs> yeah, but because because surely he got the he got the script editor job after Hitchhiker had come out after the first series, indeed. It sort of overlapped. It was very much, um, yeah. He took the Doctor Who job because it was a nice regular day job, which he did for a year. But during that year, it all went crazy. Um, the album came out. There was the stage show. Everything was kicking off, and of course, they talked about the television version. Talking of which, I see Sandra Dickinson. <laughs> Well, welcome, Sandra. Thank you for joining us. It's a pleasure. Were you aware of Hitchhiker before you got involved in the television version? I was, but um, um, my ex-husband had been listening to the radio, and I was asked, because I was working with uh, Alan J.W. Bell with Roy Kinnear on The Clairvoyant around the same time, and I was asked to go along to audition for Hitchhiker, so I quickly read the book and thought it was wonderful, but I thought... I'm not going to get this because it's for an Arabic-looking woman um, with long, dark hair. And um, But I went along to this audition very excited because it was an extraordinary book. And uh, it was a very small room. And there was this giant man behind everybody else who was Douglas. Um, and I auditioned for it. And it was very jolly and everything, but I thought, well, that was that. And then I was offered it, so I was absolutely thrilled. Because for some reason, Douglas thought I was absolutely right for this thing that he wrote that was completely different from me. (laughs) (laughs) And it also, I mean, it was defying the kind of dumb blonde role that you got cast in quite a lot. Because, you know, the Trillian is is quite a smart character. Astrophysicist, yes. Yeah, Yeah. and well, you had a physics background, didn't you? in your studies? Well, I'm more psychoanalytic. I grew up with a very famous psychoanalyst. 
Um, and I studied botany at university, so it wasn't really physics, physics but um, um, but I do occasionally look up at the sky and <laughs> <laughs> and wonder and wonder how we all got here, especially now. Um, yeah, no, it was really it was really thrilling to get to be a part of it, hugely thrilling. We'll talk about the television a bit more later on. Okay, yeah. But I'd, I'd yeah. like to go back to um, to John to ask about writing the radio uh, series, which is where it all began. This is what we're celebrating, 42 years since the beginning of the radio show. Um, John, can you remember that? Because you used a bit of your book that you were writing, didn't you? Or was it another script? Uh, well, I I don't think any of it got used, but I was write, trying to write a, a science fiction novel at the time called Gygax, and um, so I just said I've got pretty stuck. You can have a look at the manuscript and see if you can find anything in it. But oddly, not because of this, I just looked up the file today, and my God, it was terrible. I mean, unbelievably. <laughs> I mean, hopeless. Not something you're going to release. Douglas was... Uh, fond of missing deadlines and he got terribly stuck about four episodes in sort of four and a half really and he said Johnny can you help me out here because I, I, I just run out of ideas the pressure's terrible and as I remember it I mean, it's so difficult these stories are so old now you never know how true they are but <laughs> it had taken him 10 months to write the first four episodes and we knocked off the last two in just over three weeks it was fantastic fun there was no pain because of course, you know, once you there's two of you, you can share all the woes and the problems and discuss them. And most comedy writing is done in twos. It's very unusual. It's quite unusual to be a solo comedy writer. Uh, but um, yeah, and it was it was really good fun and very exciting. And I remember being there when the when the idea of forty two came up. Um, and you know, we were very very close, as I say. And then uh, when when it all took off which again was amazing because we all mooched into radio where Douglas had the next office to me as a radio producer uh, when the first one went out and uh, he sort of breezily said, are there any reviews in the papers? And we all laughed. He said, well, you know, Douglas, if you're lucky, Gillian Reynolds gives you a mention once every 10 years in her radio column, but otherwise not a chance, mate. And we opened all the papers because we did a lot of topical programs, you know, the news quiz and the news headlines and things. So the papers were everywhere, all over the office. And we opened them up. And one by one, there they all were. There's a review in the Times. <laughs> what the hell? I mean, both of us had put in, really put in the hours. You know, we used to, once he got a job as a radio producer, we used to sit there in the evenings after hours writing animations, you know, moonlighting. For uh, We wrote this two of these shows called Dr. Snuggles with Peter yeah. Yusnoff in, uh, animations. But Douglas had really put in the hours. I mean, like five years of really pushing and pushing to try and succeed, including being at university. And suddenly it was like, it was magic, you know, that everything yeah. was going to come good. And suddenly all these publishers started calling up. I think we had six publishers asked us to lunch. Yeah, oh. when you're 25 or 24, as he was, I think, it's just incredible. It's like your dream come true. I'm going to bring in our other guest now. Um, uh, Phil Pope is there, who uh, people might remember from um, KYTV and all the other uh, the other stuff and heebie-jeebies. Ah, yes, <laughs> the heebie-jeebies, yes. So many other things. Chelsea One Two Three, which I was there in the audience for, um, and Toby Longworth, 
who is um, has played several characters on the radio version of Hitchhiker and on stage, including Slarty Bartfast and Wowbagger. Toby, you were a big fan, weren't you, of the radio show? Yeah, me and, and Neil Sleet, the, uh, the the guy who reads the news on, on Radio 4 and who also reads the news, uh, uh, I think, in, in Hitchhikers on more than one of it. He took part in Hitchhikers several times. He yeah. did, indeed. Um, we used to we used to absolutely love it. And so we went, and again, it's, it's that thing, you, you kind of, you love it, um, as a fan, and then you f- you turn around one day and you you find you're actually actually in it, and it's one of those kinds of hilarious uh, turns of events. Is that the right pluralization? Turn of events? I don't know. It's like it's one of those things that you just hope your life will can uh, include, and uh, it did. In two thousand and nine, at the Royal Festival Hall, um, Owen Colfer, who wrote the sixth book, you know, uh, Penguin were doing a big splash for him to launch that book. Um, and um, he was very excited when he arrived in the auditorium and all the cast were there because he said, finally, I can put faces to those voices that I've been living with all these years. He was genuinely very fanish about it. I'm going to ask Phil, Phil Pope, um, how was, you were moving in comedy circles at that time. Were you aware of Douglas and um, what was going on with Hitchhiker? Uh, Yes, because he cast a very large shadow. (laughs) <laughs> uh, physically, apart from anything else, uh, we uh, yes, I mean we, we we were very much aware, and also, of course, you know, we were working with um, uh, with Jeffrey Jeffrey Perkins. So, of course, you know, he was he was you know really you know, it was it was very much you know the, the th- his day job was 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 doing that, and with Lisa as well, sort of um, you know acting as studio manager, etc. So it was we were we were all aware of, of what was going on, and we all knew Douglas and of course I was um, also very interested in Douglas because Douglas being so musical um, and and he was he was always um, you know we were always talking about music and and that's and that sort of thing and he was a great fan of as 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 you said before of Paul Simon but he could also play the guitar you know which was amazing um, in fact I remember years later being at a party when he had uh, when he and he used to collect guitars when he used to go around the world um and he and he was there with um and, and there was um what's his name david from pink floyd gilmore gilmore david gilmore and he and and he and he said he said oh dave i've got a new i've got a new guitar um come and have a look so he said, we, we went up to this room and there he had about 15 guitars we had this brand new guitar and he said i picked it up from uh, manny's in new york um anyway um yeah hey, have a go and so David Gilmore picked it up and went I can't play it Douglas and he said well come on come on don't be so ridiculous and he said no it's left handed <laughs> and of course all, all of Douglas's guitars were left handed the story goes that he kept one didn't he well he did uh, da- uh, which David Gilmore actually he, I think he sold it recently in his collection he kept a right handed a uh, left handed guitar in his house uh, and Douglas kept a right-handed guitar in, in 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 his house. So when each of them went round, ah, um, they could sit and um, they could sit and play. Going from those, uh, you know, small beginnings, he went to that kind of superstar status where he was actually up on stage with Pink Floyd playing at one of their concerts. That was his forty-second birthday uh, present. Uh, yeah, he went up and played Brain Damage at Earl's Court, <laughs> uh, which um, yeah, it's kind of one of those moments where you you kind of you think it. His the effect on him was actually astonishing. He always wanted to be a rock star, um, 
And, and suddenly, I think after that, he actually realised that he didn't want to be a rock star. Um, but he had been there um, and he'd, he'd done it. But uh, no, that was huge for him. It was one of the rewards of, of what he created because he, he drew people towards him. He was very interested in meeting uh, various other uh, like-minded folk. And um, I, think, I think that was, you know, when he started to move in those starry circles. Uh, can you remember some of those parties that he used to throw? Oh, it used to be um, the, the the one because uh, we've still got all these photographs. And actually, a chap here who who we know uh, who played partially plugged, uh, which was I think the the uh, Douglas party that which actually was reviewed in the Independent. Um, <laughs> a party review, uh, I like that. It was a party that was reviewed in the Independent. It was astonishing, and we were sat there trying to work out how many billionaires were in the room. Um, and there was kind of Paul Allen who was wandering around, who was the, the co-founder of Microsoft. Um, who was completely befuddled by an extension block. Um, he, he couldn't work out what, why we need an extension block. You know, surely you just go and build another, another wing to your house and put more plugs on the wall. Why would you want this temporary sort of thing? Um, but to be sat there, yeah, David Gilmore, Gary Brooker, um, and at the time there was Wixie and, and, and Robbie McIntosh and people. So effectively Paul McCartney's backing band, um, you know, and, and half of uh, Pink Floyd and what have you sat in his sitting room um, playing. They were uh, they were fantastic parties. Um, everything took to excess. And he, I mean, he was in a marvelous sort of thing. That yes, he was he was so fanatical about so many things, um, uh, and whether it was like music or whether it was computers uh, or evolution. Uh, and he was in a position that he could basically he could reach out to to, to the greater good. So Richard Dawkins. Um, um, uh, and there's one marvellous one where he um, he suddenly realised that he had friends who knew Gary Brooker, uh, Procol Harum, and Douglas is an absolute Procol Harum nut. Uh, and they basically said, well, here's, his, here's Gary's phone number, give him a call. And he sat there for ages trying to think, well, how am I going to do this? I mean, I can't just phone up and say, hello, um, you know, hi, I'm a really big fan of yours. <laughs> um, and so he didn't call him. And he didn't want to. And eventually, Gary basically phoned him up and said, for crying out loud, I hear you're going to call me. <laughs> um, and they became... Um, and again, Gary and Frankie, who became, you know, became lifelong friends. When I had a meeting with Douglas, I was doing the making of Hitchhiker's um, documentary, and I had this meeting, and he said he was off to uh, give some kind of inspirational talk to a very elite group. And um, he just casually name dropped that there was going to be I think it was George Lucas Francis Ford Coppola and the head of Sony little did he know that they were probably saying we're going to be meeting Douglas Adams <laughs> exactly <laughs> yes yes well look at what um you know Elon Musk has done with um when that when he f fired his um car his tesla car into space oh yeah yeah it had don't panic on the screen and the rumor is that there was a copy of the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy in the glove box That's what i heard yeah. yeah which we we keep trying to get confirmation of that but it's quite funny to say the people he would talk to i do remember uh, when uh, douglas used to get the digital village and his his sort of foray into the digital economy and um he used to get really really frustrated he, he used to have these ideas so that if i went online to go and buy something um and they didn't have it. But wouldn't it be brilliant if you were just driving down a road and a device that obviously he didn't know about because the iPhone hadn't been invented yet, uh, wouldn't it be brilliant? I'm, I'm driving down Upper Street um, for it to ping up and say, do you know that album that you're really, really interested in? It's, it's they're selling it in the shop here. 
Uh, and he used to drop emails to Jeff Bezos in the very, very early days of Amazon and basically saying, you know, wouldn't it be brilliant if... But the very idea of the of the Hitchhiker's Guide itself, uh, this incredible compendious device that you could get into your pocket, I mean, I, you know, it's always amazed me that he's, he's predicted that so successfully and we now, all of us, have one in our pocket. I remember uh, having a... a over lunch um years ago with uh, with a few people and um and, and Douglas saying you know wouldn't it be great if you could actually watch a television program when you wanted to watch it and and we sort of say well no and I just say well you know well things like the FA Cup final you you know you don't want to do that everyone wants to watch, have, have a shared experience and there used to be a program called you know did you see even you know it's one of the first sort of TV eating TV type of things but of course that was and I I sort of said well it's just because you know you can't work out you know, the VCRs just come out and you can't work out how to do it Douglas I mean if you just worked out how to do that you'd be fine even if, you know because he was going around the world on these sort of book tours and he was missing out on all these programs but of course actually it was a much you know it was a much more visionary thing that he, that he was saying there's another interesting thing about the technology yeah. that the fact that he was ahead of the technology all the time because when he first started becoming really well known as a writer nobody knew what he looked like because there wasn't google there wasn't wikipedia you couldn't just look somebody up and so mm. very very few people knew him so he could sit on planes and things and have conversations with people and they would n have no idea who he was and he, he used to love that he said it was great kind <clears> of fame because you'd be anonymous in the pub but if you want to say uh, somebody says what do you do so I, I write science fiction books oh really what's your name i'm douglas Adams. oh my god oh my god <laughs> there's a famous story of him being on a plane to chicago and he got talking to this guy who was a massive fan, and he said, well, you know, hey, Douglas, you got to come to a party. we got to go to a party, you know, and gave him the address. So Douglas turned up to this massive gated community on the lakeshore, you know, and uh, rang the doorbell at the apartment. And he said, the guy opens the door and he goes, yeah? And Douglas says, I I'm Douglas Adams. And the guy says, oh, my God, you're Douglas Adams. Hey, everyone, <laughs> Douglas Adams is here. Man, this is so great. So he has a great party, and eventually he sort of says, wondering where his host is, the guy who invited him, where's where's Phil? And the guy says, who's, oh, oh, oh he lives upstairs. <laughs> he comes to the wrong party. Sandra, do you remember, do you remember the um, launch, or not launch, but the rap party that Douglas threw after um, the final day of Hitchhikers on telly? I don't. I, re I remember going to parties at his house. I just remember, I just remember um, going to—I mean, going to his house with the very high ceilings, and um, I, I, Gilmore was there. Um, um, I mean, there were a lot of famous people there. I went to one of the parties about the time my marriage was about to implode, so that was a bit stressful. But um, <clears throat> but it was lovely, you know, going to them because. Um, I mean, it seems like everybody who was there was famous for something. Um, and he liked he liked the high life, didn't he? Because one of his great yeah. things while you were making the TV series was um, he loved the good food guide. Yeah, and we drove all over Cornwall going to all these wonderful restaurants. At the end of the day's filming, they'd throw me into makeup and do my hair for tomorrow's shoot, and I'd put this scarf on, a bit like a sort of babushka, and off we go into the night to these wonderful restaurants. In his VW Golf. Yeah, yeah. Oh, God, it was a whole... It was almost like a secret life I was leading, you know, um, <laughs> al you know, along with my own 
quotidian, um, we almost kind of linked up at one point when we were both single. And then um, he was just so tall, I thought I could never really reach him somehow. <laughs> and and his his brain was sort of six foot four inches up there, you know, mi- minus the top one. Um, and he was always sort of distracted by, you know, otherworldly things somehow. So... Um, but but we were great dear friends. He, I'm listening to all this and thinking, oh my god, I never thought of that. I mean, it was um, I I felt like just a sort of small cog in the entire universe of hitchhikers. You had quite um, a saucy costume, which in the script, Doug, this was very specific that he wanted it to be a uh, a little bit unseemly. <laughs> yeah, somebody brought it recently because I, I although I wasn't in the original radio, I have been in a lot of the su- subsequent you know, recorded variations of it. And somebody brought the costume to this photo shoot, oh, maybe a couple of years ago, and I thought, there's no way. Yeah, I I thought there's no way I'm going to get in that. I mean, it would sort of go on my thigh now, you know, Um, because I was a good deal slimmer in those days. I'm determined to get back to that, but um, probably be on my deathbed. Yeah, it was, and, and, and Kevin showed me some pictures recently, and I thought, Oh my God, I was amazing. Because when you're in that mode, you think, "Oh, I, I, I'm rather plain, and you know, I don't, I don't have this, and I don't have that." And now I see it. Now I think, I should have been conquering the world. You know. <laughs> so, but it's it's really fascinating to listen to all your stories because, um, as I say, I I had a very small focus to learn the lines and do the do them on the first take and behave myself and just count myself so lucky to be a part of it. And you came back to the radio series later on. Yeah, where, of course, yeah. When uh, Trillian was um, uh, infatuated with um, Wowbagger, rather improbably, Toby. <laughs> what do you mean, what, improb- improbably? What a, what a love story that was. Yeah, it was, it was two hearts cleft a twain, finally. It was radio, let's face it. Ah, oh, oh, you had to snatch it away. <laughs> I, went to a, I went to one reading of the original script. Um, at the Geographical Society. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was invited to come along, and then uh, Susan Sheridan was Sh- Sheridan was introduced as, and now the real Trillian. And I thought, <laughs> well, that was a bit of a below-the-belt, you know what I mean? I, I mean, we're all real variations of, you know what I mean? I thought, well, I shouldn't have come, really. Um, but, uh, <laughs> and then when they began to weave us together in the interpretation of the part. I must say, I did get rather confused as to who I was. It was lovely because Douglas clearly wrote that idea into the fifth book, the last Hitchhiker book that he wrote, the idea of two trillions. And it was clear from the description that you were the other trillion. Yeah. Or the real trillion. The real trillion, yeah, (laughs) depending on which way you look at it. (laughs) Yeah. When we did the recent British Library uh, reading of it, I I did try to... Uh, pay a bit of homage to Susan by doing it in a slightly more English-accented reading than than my actual TV appearance. Um, Phil, Phil and and Toby, this really uh, the live performance of Hitchhiker. You've both taken parts in uh, in various live shows. What's it like to do this kind of material to an audience? Because you know, usually it's. Uh, a radio thing or a TV thing is kind of made in isolation. But when you've got the crowd out there, what's what was that like? Got any memories of the live shows? 
I always thought it was a bit like what it must have felt like, uh, maybe a version of Monty Python live at the Hollywood Bowl, because everybody's oh. really sing- they're singing along with the sketches. Yeah, I remember the the the, the two thousand and nine show at the, the the for the the, the Pan anniversary at the at the Festival Hall. Um, Rosie, my wife, was 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 in the audience with uh, one or two of my children, and. and at the end of it, she said, "I said, how did it go? How did you know? Did you, did you enjoy it?" And she said, "Yeah, but it was a bit weird because you know everyone in the audience was was actually was speaking the lines with you. It was you know it was." I, she said, "I felt rather left out, you know." Yeah. Well, on when we were on tour, that we had a different book, a different reader for the book. Uh, John, of course, uh, read read the book very very elegantly, more than one occasion. Um, but we had different one and different people had different levels of familiarity with the script and sometimes if uh if a, one of the books wasn't familiar with a word or a, or a pronunciation of a planet or or something uh-huh. the audience were quite quick and and eager to uh to correct any any mis mis uh, mispronunciations or anything like that it was quite entertaining they were talking they were talking about doing another uh run stage show, show again recently weren't they yeah, that's that's but unfortunately that was all sort of you know the the current pandemic has has put paid to that for the time being, um, yeah. as as a, as yeah. as an anniversary thing. But you know it may you never know. But I mean the great thing about doing the show live was just how was the the warmth that came back yeah. from the audience and the reaction was just extraordinary. I mean it was like a rock concert really. Totally, uh, totally. It, it was, um, and so it was. And and the audience were just with you, and it wasn't just all you know, Hitchhikers fans, uh, you know the the original Hitchhikers fans. And I think there were people. And what the great thing was that people were bringing their you know their their family, their their children, their grandchildren even, and so it was it it was a real occasion, and and it was good fun. Marvin was a huge um, hit with the kids. I remember cause I I shot some uh, vox pops after one of the tours in twenty twelve twenty thirteen. And the children were absolutely in love with Marvin. Now, I think we should pay a little uh, tribute here. So, obviously, we've mentioned um, Susan Sheridan, but Stephen Moore was uh, the original and, and you know, best Marvin, let's be honest. Um, he, uh, you know, he was stunned when at the 2008 uh, 30th anniversary of Hitchhikers um, at the Royal Geographical Society... When he said Marvin's first line, it brought the house down. There were cheers and everything. And he talked about it afterwards. He was he was um, quite touched by that and suddenly realised how much this character meant. We'd had him on tour on on tape with us. Yes, he wasn't available. And uh, luckily, I, I went and um, filmed when uh, Dirk Mags, um, you know, the great Dirk, who has uh, adapted everything of recent times um he he recorded Stephen because Stephen wasn't going to be available for the hitchhiker tour and we got really Stephen's final ever performance as Marvin that day and of course the recording went on to have a life beyond it's been used yeah and it was used at the uh the live show the um at the but yeah what memories what memories we got of that well, that was amazing because mm. I was doing the voice of the book. Yeah. And wow. doing whatever. It's complete live radio. It's one of the most exhilarating things ever. 
That countdown at the beginning yeah. to the moment when it was going live. I hadn't done live radio since Douglas and I worked together in radio. I used to do a two-hour live show on Radio 2 called Late Night Extra, which is the adrenaline pumping is really mm. amazing. John, uh, there have been several people that have read the book, the voice of the book, for various um, uh, radio shows. Obviously, Peter Jones, the first one. and um, uh, I, actually, actually, I did a little video with him for um, when we premiered the uh, TV series episode one they needed a, a little warm-up video so I popped up from under his desk and he demonstrated how how to wear the headphones off one ear because they wanted to record the laughter track you know um, but Peter was fantastic and he read it with that slightly bemused you weren't really sure whether he got what he was saying but he delivered it with panache well, he always claimed then, never to understood a word of it so I think yes. he, was, he was a very bright guy <laughs> I think he did understand it, but yeah. And then William Franklin uh, took over, oh, lovely and um, he he admitted at first that he didn't get it, but he practiced it quite a bit, and he used to play recordings to Dirk while he was rehearsing it at home. And he said that Douglas's words were like um, surfing the waves at Bondi Beach, which is where he grew up. You just wow. you just hang on for dear life to the end of the sentence. This is so true, Kevin. I mean, when I did the Hexagonal Phase book, which I did with Dirk Mags, all in one day, all six episodes, and wow, these sentences they come at you, and I mean, the, these words, you know, quiggle quoggle quoggle, you know, and, and just out of nowhere, because I didn't have any rehearsal, and it's absolutely draining. And anyway, we. <laughs> I went away and Dirk phoned up the next day. So, don't you got the voice quite right? Can you come and do it again? So I had to do it all, all over again. And I thought it was just me, but he said they were all exactly the same. Everyone else said these are impossible paragraphs to read. It's really, it's really a test. I watched William Franklin go through it in uh, what was that, two thousand and five um, or two thousand and three when he first did it, and it was it was exactly the same sort of struggle with with the whole rhythm and the flow and um but you know nailed it and so did you i, I watched you struggle with it um uh, for the hexagonal phase but you got there good direction from dirk is just don't yeah. try so hard just do it and and Let you know flow. once you don't yeah. try and be peter jones or bill or stephen fry for that matter who did yeah. the movie didn't mm. he um it's just to let the words speak for themselves and then it all all comes good can we talk a bit about the um the different adaptations that there have been and that you might have witnessed uh, as um, as viewers or as listeners, you know, has anyone got anything to say about the, the books versus the television versus the movie? The first two books, I've, I mean, I think they're really amazing pieces of work. I think they're particularly those. I know people usually, real fans usually say the radio is the thing. Mm. But for me, the books are they're they're just kind of masterpieces, really. And it's it's actually you know because as, as is again probably well known, Douglas gave me the sack after the first series, and and we went on we were we booked this holiday in Corfu together, and so he was the great novelist sitting up on the hill on the terrace, and I was the drunk in the taverna but on the beach, <laughs> and we spent a month together with him trying to write this book, and it was fascinating because the first draft was actually Kurt Vonnegut. You know, it was a Kurt Vonnegut book, and I said, "You can't do this, Douglas. You haven't caught your own voice." So he started all over again, and it's one of those things. You know, 
at the time, being sacked by your best friend is not not an amusing experience particularly. But once you see the work, you think, oh, I understand this now. You know, the pain is necessary to produce something that good. Because actually, I'm a great believer in this. I think nothing great is ever achieved without tremendous struggle. I can certainly say that about my television productions, for example. <laughs> People who say, oh, it went great. It was such fun. We all had a, just a huge laugh. You think, well, that's not going to be any good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's got to be difficult at some point. And I think that, you know, I, I always felt that, you know, at the time, um, you know, Douglas was making a mistake and ever since I thought no no he he it has made him an immortal and it's kicked my ass to go off and do something different you know do something of my own there's one of those things that you always hear if people say that they had fun making a thing you always go oh Christ it's going to be awful this isn't it it's always well, it's that a dichotomy like, a bit like someone coming out of an exam saying oh I think I did really well yeah <laughs> I aced it I felt about the film that it was just too overproduced it, it had kind of lost that uh collegiate sort of charm you know undergraduate charm it didn't didn't quite didn't quite get to the sense of humor either i feel no it was just most un-british i thought speaking as an american brit but um i just thought it lost its charm really they lost his voice that was the thing i think that the script i think the visuals were fantastic and i know that the uh, hammer and tongs the the uh, two the producer and director they they really had Douglas's best interest at heart, but they didn't really have. I think the studio controlled what what happened to the script. Yeah, and so they they messed with the dialogue. I think that's the only thing I can say about it. But I loved some of the visuals. Misunderstanding what do you mean by the end of the universe? The, as the most people oh, come well, to be. Yeah, that, that was. Oh uh, well, that, well, there was one version. Uh, every now and again, when Douglas used to come back from America. Um, and come and stay, um, and it was the accepted thing that we didn't mention the film until he did. Oh right! Um, and this is sort of oh, this is going back for you know for decades almost. Um, and the, the one time when you, he, he walked in and you could tell that there was something was seriously wrong, but again, you don't mention the film because if he mentions it, we'll go there. If he doesn't mention it, we don't go there at all. Uh, and that was the one when Disney suggested that maybe we could delay the blowing up of the Earth until the end of the film. <laughs> um, um. Basically, because you know, we wanted to get absolutely everything to build up the relationships that did the move on and all ending in this catastrophic, massive explosion. Uh, that movie, the history of that movie. So, I remember when it first came up, Douglas and I, he, he was trying to pitch it in, and he'd taken Donna Summer's Beach House in Mal- Malibu for the summer. This had been 82, and he was pitching this movie. And we'd had this idea for writing The Meaning of Lift. So, he said, Johnny, can you? I'm really sorry to do this, but I can't make the meeting. You couldn't come out to Malibu, could you, for like, you know, month? Oh, uh, I don't know. All right. Yes, all right. Well, he'd go off in the day and he'd come back. He'd tell these terrible stories about meeting some sort of dwarfish guy with an enormous cigar for lunch, you know. And this guy, one guy said to him, so... Dougie, what should I call you? Dougie, Doug, or Douglas? And Douglas said, Douglas, please. He's like, okay, Dougie. <laughs> but I think what you said about hammering tongs, uh, who um, at the time were actually living, uh, they, they made commercials. Uh, and the one thing that they were fantastic on was, was creating amazing effects, amazing visuals without Hollywood money. And they were actually, at the time, their office was a, was a, a barge, uh, which was like a quarter of a mile from Douglas's house. Uh, around the corner and going and um, 
And when he went into the art department, on the, the Heart of Gold, you never saw it on the film. Um, the, 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 the front of the Heart of Gold was this ring. Uh, and looking at it close up, the detail of basically all the things about Douglas's life uh, were included in that the love that these guys put into it was absolutely massive. Aww. It's meant to look like a cup of tea, wasn't it? Yeah, but on the film, you know, nobody, um, nobody saw. And then the visuals when he, they uh, with Slarty Bartfast when they go onto the factory floor, um, and Magrathea, and so they go through the tunnel and they come out on the so like the extending arm that just goes and goes and goes. The um, the artwork. Um, the, 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 the fanatical attention to detail but the thing that always got me you're saying that when you actually went and watched the live shows um, and you suddenly realised that all those people around were a, a word was wrong they were in there all of Douglas's words everything that made and even now um, every five minutes you know Douglas's all his little phrases which were made for Twitter these little snapshots uh, which appear all over the place uh, were, were completely missing from the film. Um, almost that, you know, that that vision of Douglas, it it was it wasn't there, and I think that was more the studio rather than Hammer and Tongs. The visual element, but also the conceptual element of the of the the whole Hitchhiker's ethos—that's the word I'm working for, ethos—has um, shaped the way we uh, use computers and the computer in our pocket, and all of that kind of thing is is its first step was uh, being delineated and described by Douglas. And so the world we now live in, for, for good or ill, was his idea. Well, yeah, I, I remember that Douglas... I mean, he, of course, he was a, a... As we all know, he was a, a Mac guru, wasn't he? Wasn't he, uh, he was, you know... You, Apple, yeah. An Apple master. Oh, wow. He was an Apple... Apple used to... Uh, Apple used to send them off around the world to basically preach the... Uh, uh, to, Pre- preach and um, and there was loads of them. There was him, um, Stephen Fry was he as well? Uh, yeah, Stephen Fry was, but he kind of didn't go around so much. Uh, Muhammad Ali uh, was one. Loads of Hollywood guys, uh, and so he would then be flown off to uh, to go and talk at an Apple event. Um, and it was and it was crazy that none of them were paid, and at the end of it, they would just be given so like a new bit of kit. And he used to come home. <laughs> um, and it was staff at the time those sort of Sun Microsystems were paying him 75 grand to go and stand on a cruise ship and give a talk for two hours. Um, and Apple get, got it for free, um, uh, you know, for giving him a little bit of kit or what have you, purely because they all just evangelize. They love the kit. I remember him showing me a, 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 the original Apple uh, Mac, you know, the, the 128 K or whatever it was, and and Bill Gates famously said, you know, um, no one will need will ever need more than one two eight K, um, and and seeing this computer and, and Douglas saying, you know, this is going to revolutionise the world, and I sort of looked at it and thought, well, it's basically a typewriter, isn't it, with a screen, and he, but but he but of course you know we shared a. a uh, I we talked about this, you know, that, that we had this sort of love of music, um, but of course Douglas was always, you know, I was the I was a professional composer, um, but he always had the most fantastic <laughs> kit. He always had sort of much better kit than I did. He had, but but he was, you know, but he was fantastically. He was very generous, though. I mean, he would, you know, if if he was going off on to, on on a world tour or something, and I and I, I remember once saying to him, "Look, Douglas, my computer's." broken i don't know what, what, what you know what to do and he said he said 
Um, okay, well, I've got a, I've got a two CE. You could have that for a couple of months or something. So this was, you know, and and I was, he, I said, well, can I just use it? And he said, he said, yes. I mean, just don't touch anything on it. <laughs> um, and then I sort of, I was amazed that he had about two hundred apps, uh, and this was in about nineteen eighty-two or something. It was like, well, I didn't even know these things existed. But but he had the and the the music the stuff he had the most extraordinary uh, collection of, of, of music stuff as well. Anyway, so yes, he was he was really at the at the forefront of, of these things, and I remember him showing that computer, that, that box. His house at um in 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 Duncan Terrace, Lusington, uh, which he kind of bought as a shell, um, and completely gutted it and turned it into this amazing place, and um as well I think when he was off with Mark Corwardine going off around the world making Last Chance to See. Um, and he was turning the top floor, which was going to become his his kind of study playroom. And I'll always remember this marvellous one, that the, the electrician who phoned up and basically said, there's something wrong here. Um, can we get hold of Douglas? And was the same, well, no, because I think he's in Guatemala, Patagonia, in the middle of nowhere. What's the problem? And he just said, well, I've got it down here that I'm supposed to put 58 sockets into this cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> that, that can't possibly be right. And, and we sort of went, no, that's, yeah, no, that's his music cupboard. That's basically, so there's cupboard doors when you open it up and that's where all the sampling, all this wall of racks of stuff and the keyboards. Yeah, that's about yeah, right. Just 58. Yeah. Just 58, yeah. yeah. <laughs> 58 sockets in one cupboard. Yeah. Phil, you're... Um... Your uh, contribution in recent times to the music, you were picking up the mantle, uh, you know, created by Paddy Hingsland all those years ago. Oh, I hesitate to be mentioned in the same breath. Oh, uh, but, you know, you were playing live as well. So you were preparing cues and can you tell us a bit about that, the live music side of it? Well, the live music was, um, I mean, Dirk, to his credit, was very, you know, he was very particular and very keen to keep as as Toby says, you know, the ethos and the, the whole sort of um, flavour of, of, of the original and Douglas's vision of it, because, I mean, Dirk you know, had been talking to Douglas about doing the radio series you know, back in the 90s or what have you. I mean, the, the books um, three and four, the series three and four. So when we did this, the stage show, um, we talked about what sort of music it should be and we wanted to try and have a flavour of... Um, this is a conversation I had with Dirk, and I remember... Very clearly, you know, talking about um, you know, this, what sort of music would Douglas have wanted or might have wanted. Um, so we wanted to keep a flavour of of the uh, the radiophonic workshop stuff, if possible, uh, the Paddy Kingston stuff, and but also to try and make it, you know, as of now, as it was then in in twenty twelve or whatever it was. But but also to try and have have some. The, the sort of music that Douglas liked, so, and that's why we started it with with one of these days by Pink Floyd because you know he was a big Pink Floyd fan, um, but also there were one or two pieces in the in the uh, the voice of the book passages and those sort of things. I thought, well, you know, Douglas was a great fan. Well, fan fans the wrong word. He was a great admirer of of J. S. Bach. So there was one piece in particular, which was called Space, where I sort of tried to write something which was a sort of, like a sort of um, uh, a, prelude, a prelude or something by, by Bach, you know, which obviously wasn't. But, um, and, and so it, it, was, it was that sort of thing where we tried to sort of 
get a sort of melange of, 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 of all those things, trying to get the new technology, trying to get a flavour of, of the original radio series, but also a little bit of what Douglas you know, liked as well. Well, we've covered many of the different versions of Hitchhiker. We're going to have to wrap it up in a few moments. Um, there was due to be a new series being shot at Elstree around about now. It was all being set up, and then, of course, the coronavirus epidemic occurred and everything got put on hold i understand that series is still due to go ahead um i wish them luck with it uh i wonder what they'll do how's that going to be but i think and i hope you'll agree i mean the books are going to be there forever whatever other versions may yet to come i hope they're as successful as all the versions that all of you took part in i've got to wrap this up now (laughs) it's been fascinating actually i feel like a fan yeah I feel like a fan. Thanks to all of you for your time and for taking part in this fascinating discussion. Uh, we look forward to um, seeing you at Blue Dot next year, hopefully, because it all got cancelled this year. They have talked about doing a Hitchhiker uh, 42nd anniversary a year late next year. Um, but I hope we get to do something. Maybe we'll all see each other there. The world will be virtual from from now on. The whole world will be virtual. We're never going to meet each other ever again. Blue Dot returns to Jodrell Bank on the 22nd to the 25th of July, 2021. More information on the Blue Dot Festival and Blue Dot's universe of music, science and cosmic culture. Visit discovertheblue.com. Thanks for listening to the Blue Dot Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review wherever you're listening. And check out show notes and more information on this episode at discovertheblue.com slash podcast. This episode was brought to you thanks to support from The Space through funding from Arts Council England and the National Lottery.